Hello, my name is Patricia Rosvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore the relation, interest and the urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Here, I also wanted to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. It's very rewarding to see that with every episode, the community is growing, which was, of course, the whole point of this platform. If you are a regular listener, you might want to check out my Patreon page, where you can support my work and help me develop this amazing but time-consuming project. You can do that on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. Hi everyone, I'm happy uh, to be back after a short holiday break. It took a little longer to release this episode also because the original version was uh, recorded in Polish. And I took a little time to do the overdubbed version. So just make sure you are on the right version. In case you speak Polish, I recommend to listen to the original one, which has PL uh, at the beginning of the title. Otherwise, uh, the English version uh, is the other one uh, available for everyone else. Um, enjoy. Just a little side note, the very first part you're going to listen, so the first uh, 12 minutes uh, were kind of a pre-conversation uh, to our recording. That's why the quality of the recording is different, but I decided to include it as well um, since it has a value and off-the-record kind of feeling to it. Uh, and the intro about today's guest will follow after uh, that short part. I don't really know where to start. Maybe I'll start with the most odd thing. That they invited us. They invited four organizations. From Mariupol, from Kherson, from Kharkiv, from Dnipro. These are the cities that were most affected by the war. Kherson occupied. Kharkiv destroyed. Mariupol in ruins. We arrived there, and not even from the organizers, but from a friend of a friend, we find out that the ZKU collective that initially invited us also invited Russians and their program starts the day after ours. We had a three-day program there in Ruru House. If you've ever been to Castle, it's this big building in the center with documentas, information point and so on. Our program was supposed to finish on the 29th and on the 30th a Russian delegation was supposed to enter the same space with a program called something about we are invisible, the World War II and the impact on the Russian society and so on. So they kind of gave uh, them as much space to tell their point as they give to you. Even worse. They gave the space after us. They gave them the final voice after ours. 
And were those people also artists, activists? Yeah, exactly. Artists, activists, organizations also. With some of them we even worked before, some people we knew from before. Our paths uh, have crossed already before. But I also have to say here that they didn't know we are going to be there. But can you imagine how painful it was? In a way, for me now, it's not traumatic to have contact with Russians, as I do have a lot of contact with Russian people. However, for some people, for example, the woman from Kherson, Olena, told me, please, don't let those people close to me. I don't want to have contact with them at all. I don't want to hear the language. I just can't. Psychologically, it's hard for me. And we were put in this situation. Naturally, they all came to our workshop. Of course, those Russians didn't know that we are going to be put together in one program. Well, and of course, they totally didn't understand what is going on as well. They were crying around. The Documenta invited people, women with real PTSD, with an absolute lost sense of security and sort of put us into this situation. Now, every contact with Russians is perceived differently by everyone, depending on your psychological state. You know how much a given Ukrainian person went through, what kind of experience they had. I also have a problem, for example, with the Russian accent, the kind from Moscow. When I hear it, it awakes fear in me, and it happens subconsciously. Consciously, I understand that I'm not supposed to be afraid, but subconsciously, this accent just makes me scared. I just can't listen to it, literally. Maybe it's because I've spent a lot of my life with Russians. Not all of the people who were there in Castle had such an accent, but there was one guy that when I heard him, I just had to step back and walk away, you know, slowly, so as not to give the impression that I was somehow overreacting. Well, it's also just, you don't know how to react, you don't know how to talk, it's hard. Especially with people you're just getting to know. You have to check their Instagram accounts to establish if they are for or against the war and are speaking openly about it. Once you've checked that, only then you can talk, because morally it doesn't sit with me. Plus, there are all the stories you hear from those people. It's well known that they are also having a very hard time. They've all got sentences for every small objection against the regime. You can get big sentences, like 10 years. In Russia, you can even get a sentence for printing a zine. And you know, you listen to these with empathy. You understand the situation which they are going through. But unfortunately, those people who oppose the system are very few. So we had to fight. We had to spend three days proving and asking and talking to the German organization about the fact that it's not acceptable for us to be put next to a Russian program. And how did they explain themselves? Why did they think it was a good idea to invite artists from Russia as well? A lot was said, but among others, for example, things like we are in Germany, in a tolerant Germany, and we have to tolerate everybody here. We should tolerate everybody.
But it's one thing, of course, to tolerate someone and another to give platform, invite and give an equal voice to yours. No, I had the feeling they didn't quite understand the seriousness of the whole situation. That it wasn't there but conscience. They didn't intend to offend us. But it was a total lack of a kind of understanding from what kind of conditions we come from and what these conditions mean to us. What Mariupol is right now, what kind of state of mind a person can have when losing a home twice, for example. Diana from Mariupol moved to Mariupol from Donbass, from Donetsk. And she was doing a queer space in Mariupol, which is already an amazing thing in itself. All this time she was leading the space and had to flee once again. You know, these are such traumatic experiences. You're literally talking to people with a post-traumatic stress disorder caused by war. I had the feeling that they just don't understand, that this situation is so remote to them. It felt like they are organizing something in order to tick it off from the agenda. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, that they just invited you out of a kind of need to talk about it because it's happening right now and you do have to talk about it. It feels like their intention was good somehow, but that they didn't really understand the seriousness of the situation, as you said. That the fact that you're speaking out here affects you in such a different way that them, the organizers of Documenta. Yes, and besides that, you know, we felt like we had invited ourselves to Documenta. Because, you know, from the beginning, nobody invited any Ukrainian artists, no Ukrainian program. There was no mention about a war happening right now in Europe. In the entire Documenta, and I saw around 65% of it, there was no mention about it, except the work of Dan very famous Romanian graphic artist who does drawings, illustrations, where he comments on social and political life. He was the only one to mention the war in his drawings. Additionally, there was a pin he made, an anti-war button, which you could buy for 5 euro, and the money would go to help refugees from Ukraine. And on that pin, it said, Stop Putin's war. A slogan that is already outdated, so to speak, a slogan from the first protests. Yes, but also we were from the very beginning, Ukrainian was shouting about the fact that this is not Putin's war. On the 27th of February, I think, there was already a comment by Kadan Nikita, I think, on his Facebook profile, about the war and the Russian invasion. And then a well-known curator from Russia wrote under his comment, that this is not Russian, but Putin's war. That comment was then made public and shared many times. And that's when we started arguing that what about responsibility? Eight years, and none of you did anything about it all. I'm talking about what happened in Crimea that the war had already been going on for eight years. And no one from your circle, almost no one, said anything in public, through artworks or in any other way, about what was happening in 2014. And suddenly it's not our war, it's Putin's war. 
I remember I was reading that on the 28th, 27th of February, and it was super painful to hear something like that. The fact that they are shrugging off all responsibility. Because what do we mean when speaking about civil society? You feel a responsibility that you can influence the social life, that you can do stuff, you can change things. Okay, of course, I understand. It's difficult in a land where you don't have freedom of speech due to sentences, due to the terror and so on. But they haven't said anything in any way in this whole time. But it's also interesting because I also had to learn it. You know, I also remember that at the beginning I used the slogan Stop Putin, Stop War. But by informing myself and reading statements by people from Ukraine, I understood that this is a bit more complicated than a war of one bad guy. It also rejects the whole history of our struggle. It rejects the element of Russian imperialism, which is basically the main reason of every war Russia has started in the last 20, 30 years at least. Chechnya, Abkhazia, Georgia, Moldova, everything that happened in Ukraine, what had happened in Belarus, the huge protests. After all, it did not happen without the hand of Putin and Russia. And it's all because they have an imperialistic hunger for, I don't know what, for 400 years at least, since the creation of the Russian Empire. They rewrite textbooks, which is a total lie. And this lie is used to build this ideology, this racism, this Slavic myth, where the Russian nationality stands supreme. And this was both in the Soviet Union and before the Soviet Union. And it really goes back centuries. To say that this was built only in the last 20 years of Putin's rule is simply not to see the danger behind this lies and this aggression. We know that this situation is not a one-time thing. We know that Ukraine could be just the beginning if other countries do not oppose this imperial behavior. So now we should say decolonize Russia. Yes. So the voice and person who you just heard is the one and only Yulia Krivich, a Ukrainian-Polish uh, visual artist, curator and activist working with photography, public space and post-artistic approaches. And I met uh, Yulia in person not long ago, but I know her work and follow her uh, on Instagram already for some time. We have uh, some common friends, uh, among others, uh, Marta Romankiv, who was on my podcast uh, in one of the first episodes and she works a lot uh, with Yulia that's how I, I think uh, the first time um, got to know uh, about her and her work uh, recently in Warsaw we met in person had lunch and Yulia also invited me to some initiatives uh, she's um, creating and organizing together with Słoneczczyk an activist uh, artistic group uh, based in Warsaw that we will speak about uh, more uh, later on this episode I thought uh, Yulia, as a Ukrainian-Polish artist from Dnipro, but for many years now very active uh, working and living uh, in Warsaw, would be a great uh, voice to have as one of the first uh, after the full-scale invasion on Ukraine. Uh, as you know, I was uh, doing a little... Uh, 
short episodes with recommendations uh, about culture and arts uh, in Ukraine. And there I was asking people to give me recommendations and then guiding the episodes by myself because I thought it was too early uh, to kind of bother Ukrainians and Ukrainian artists uh, to take part uh, in podcasts. But definitely, I think now is the time uh, to really open and listen uh, to what they have to say, because they are really uh, the ones who can explain us the most and who understand uh, the bigger picture of uh, what and why it's happening. And that's why uh, I was waiting uh, to find the right person uh, to start also this discourse on my podcast. And Yulia is definitely the person worth uh, listening to. Uh, at the very beginning, we are speaking about uh, Documenta and her and her activist friends encounters uh, there, which will also be uh, more discussed uh, in a few seconds. Otherwise, we spoke about her recent uh, activist uh, artworks, I would say, because she always kind of works on the edge of those, on some collective projects she did in the last months and everything in the context uh, of Poland uh, and Warsaw, which I think for a lot of the listeners is also interesting since Poland was one of the closest countries uh, that was involved in helping uh, people coming, uh, fleeing from Ukraine. And also we, we do understand, I think, a lot of those dynamics. And I think this combination of being from Ukraine and also Polish and living in Poland uh, is a great uh, way to understand the complexity of things. So please welcome Julia Krivich uh, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, now that we've started, let's continue with the official Kitchen Conversations. Uh, welcome, Julia, once again. Uh, we started talking about this year's documenta in Kassel. Well, let's start with the fact that no one invited us to documenta. There was no mention about the war anywhere. When being there, we heard from the German organizers, who eventually invited us, that we should be super grateful to them that they made such a big effort to host us. And they probably did, and thank you for that to them. However, they said that it was very, very difficult to include us in the program on this year's Documenta, since this year's Documenta is dedicated to the Global South. But going back to the Documenta that I have visited, it's not only dedicated to the Global South, I would say. For example, in the main program, there was an artist from Russia, from Moscow, who does murals and stuff like this. In the end, I didn't see her work, didn't find it anywhere in any of the exhibitions, but she was in the program. There was also Dan Perjovsky, whom I mentioned before. And in general, in terms of Global South, I had the feeling that this documenta was more about collectivity, because the invited curators were also a collective and not just one person, which is cool, I think, I like that. And this curatorial collective invited other collectives. 
uh, befriended or not from different countries. Obviously because they were from Indonesia, a big percentage of artists were from Indonesia as well, but also other countries of the global south. Palestine, a lot of Palestinian artists, a lot of other Middle Eastern countries. And there was also an exhibition about Haiti, which I liked very much, probably one of the best exhibitions I saw at the Documenta. Also of Biennale, they on the other hand did an Roma exhibition, which is also cool and I really liked that exhibition as well. But in general, to me, the themes were more connected to decolonization. The common denominator was to give voice to people who, for example, had not appeared on Documenta before. My very favorite exhibition was, of course, the one by Saudat Ismailova from Uzbekistan, where she also works with a collective called Davra, a group of women from different countries of Central Asia, Tyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. And that was probably the most interesting exhibition for me because I had never before seen someone from Central Asia at such a big art festival. That was kind of a breakthrough for me. And of course, we understand each other more. Well, that's what I wanted to say, that in terms of the subject matter and historical context, it's much closer um, to us, isn't it? And the very context in which you appeared at Documenta, Russia's war and their imperialistic mind, well, it perfectly fits to the program of Documenta, in my opinion. But in the end, you traveled to Kassel with an artistic activist delegation and organized a three-day program in which you proposed a conversation or topics that need to be discussed. How does Europe respond to what is going on in the world right now, in Ukraine and in Europe in general? So tell us, what have you achieved or what positive things have come out of this program for you in Kassel? Well, for me, first of all, the positive thing was a type of decentralization. The fact that the organizers of Documenta didn't invite artists who are non-stop talking and taking space about what is going on right now in Ukraine. Artists who appear in the global discourse about Ukraine within the cultural circle. They invited organizations that work precisely in the places mostly affected by this war, marginalized places. They, for example, invited Platform to Mariupol, a quite well-known organization in the Ukrainian context. They are doing such things, such events, residencies, workshops, exhibitions, some kind of happenings, doing things in a place like Mariupol. A very strong person is required to run something like this in a sense that the city has a history. First, it was occupied in 2014 and also liberated. Mariupol is a super-industrial city next to the Sea of Azov. I was there once, and in terms of culture, well, it's the last place I would think of in terms of something happening culturally. Sorry to say, but that's the fact. And it also has a very complicated history. Not only do they speak Russian there, but it has always been kind of on the borderline because it belongs to the Donetsk region. So people there constantly look for their identity. So to go there with a queer agenda, where for me it really takes power. I bow before 
Diana Berg, who is one of the main people of to Mariupol. I met her for the first time in Kassel, and then I realized why she's the one running such a platform. I think only Diana could do something like that in Mariupol. So imagine such an important platform like Documenta. Well, for me, at least Documenta was always number one in terms of art events, similar to the Venice Biennale. For me, Documenta has always been something I was looking up to. And then suddenly, someone from a town like Mariupol or Kherson, which is now occupied, is invited to Documenta. Ukrainian women like Olena and, well, Olena is the director of Totem in the center of Kherson, also a super marginalized city in terms of art and culture in the context of the map of Ukraine. Olena came to Documenta with her colleague, who is a human rights watch in that region, now also documenting war crimes. I really like the fact that we started with their program, because this woman, the friend of Olena, who is not connected to art or the art world at all, spoke simply about facts. She spoke about the realities of an occupation. Well, because they often suggest us here in the West uh, to surrender, to give up territories. So this woman explained in a very simple way what this all means what life under occupation is like, this terror, well, everything, basically. Of course, uh, I found it hard to contain myself at this particular speech, because I too was in Kherson last year, and somehow the city stayed close to my heart. And hearing it all from first hand, not reading in the papers or hearing somewhere in the TV, but hearing it from someone who saw it with their own eyes, well, it was quite a tough experience. So all in all, I really like this decentralization. I like that people from those particular regions had the most to say. And of course Dnipro, my fatherland, well, motherland. I really felt a big pride, which I have never felt before. Can you imagine? You're in castle, you're in such high art place, and all of a sudden you're presenting Dnipro. You're becoming a type of ambassador of Dnipro. And it was so touching to me. My attention was also drawn to the fact that in the program of your three-day workshops, each day was numbered by the day of the war. It was so powerful to read that, for example, the 27th of July was also the 154th day of Russia's war on Ukraine. It was a reminder that despite the fact that we are here in such a prestigious art event, it doesn't mean that the war has stopped. As we speak, there are people fighting for the freedom of their country. It seems to me that we need to remind ourselves this all the time and you managed to do that with such a strong graphical gesture.
super mocnym, takim graficznym, że tak powiem, znakiem. Now I would like to ask about the topics you intended to discuss during your program. What was important for you to raise in such a big Western artistic event like the Documenta? I will first of all speak about our program, the Dnipro program, because we only organized one debate, which was taking place during the last day. And in my opinion, it was the most needed debate. I will also say that the main idea of this three-day workshops or events in Kassel was to invite those German intellectuals who signed two letters to Olaf Scholz. Oh yeah, those so-called pacifists, who are a very big group here in Germany and in Berlin especially, I think. Yeah, exactly. So we made an open call and invited people to come join the discussion. But in the end, no one showed up. What's more, and here I'm going to tell it in the form of an anecdote without mentioning names, one of the reasons why someone couldn't come to our discussion was that they were writing a book at the moment on the importance of peace, and that's why they couldn't find the time to join our debate. Well, because that wouldn't be a good material for the book, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I have a feeling that's the amount of West-splaining I have experienced in Castle. I haven't experienced for a long time. I do experience and see it online, but not so much in Poland. So what is West-splaining for you? I always start explaining it with a simple example, although it may not be fully geopolitically correct. But I try explaining it from the etymology of the word itself, because it came from the term men-splaining when men explain the world to us women. And I feel that the aspect of power here is the same. When a person of privilege, in this context from Europe, because, well, let's admit Western Europe was always in the privileged, it had colonies, it was imperialistic, and so on and so on. So, all of a sudden, they start telling us how we are supposed to fight or not fight, how we are supposed to surrender. They simply take away our agenda, take away our right to have a saying in all of this. Because for them it's some bigger plan, we are just a part of that plan. Explaining that sort of things to us, starting with the idea of surrender, or how we should present ourselves, what we should say, how we are supposed to speak whether we are supposed to be emotional or not. For me, it's totally a feminist discourse. I very often compare those discourses to sort of understand how we feel. I think it's perhaps easier for a woman to understand because we all been in this situation. And I literally hear, you are too emotional, you are too sensitive about it. And apparently that's why I do not have an objective view on the situation in Ukraine. In what position does the West currently see Eastern Europe and especially Ukraine, what do you think? I wouldn't want to generalize here because many of my German friends keep telling me that, for example, not all Germans call for seizing fire, for not sending arms to Ukraine. 
These are many voices and many people who understand the situation. So I wouldn't want to generalize, but generalizing, I would like to say that I have the feeling that Western Europe sees Ukraine more or less in the same way This may sound a bit radical, but more or less the same way as Russia sees it, as part of a bigger plan, as an object instead of a subject. On the day of our debate, the last day of our stay in Documenta, where we spoke about West planning and decolonization, half an hour before that, some men appeared in the center of castle. Exclusively elderly men with banners in German calling for peace and against sending weapons to Ukraine. Uh, when seeing these men, I approached them and tried talking, but it was very difficult. It was very difficult to have a conversation because I felt, well, apart from the fact that, of course, uh, it was very emotional, I got super angry. I ran up to those people and wanted to attack them. Well, of course, I held back and tried to talk to them. But the problem was that I didn't feel on their side any openness to a dialogue. They just knew better. They were directly talking to a person from there, but they still didn't want to listen. They didn't even want to imagine for one second what we are feeling. Well, in general, I have to say, after this trip to Castle, I realized what an important role empathy plays in our world. And it was in these people that I didn't see any empathy. Because what is empathy? It's the ability to put yourself in the other's person's shoes. So I say to them directly, okay, you want to stop the war. I also want that. So let's establish a common ground. What proposals do you have? How should we do it? What should we do? They say, negotiations. I say, Well, there have been negotiations, and what came with these negotiations? Bombing. There's no conversations there. Russia is acting as a terrorist country. We get terrorist attacks after every peaceful talk. Literally, same thing every time. So how to believe the other side? They are not trustworthy. You can negotiate with someone who keeps their words their promises, if only for a while. No, 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 no. I'm from Ukraine, which is why I can't look sober at the situation. And of course, I invited those old men to come to our discussion, so I guess they didn't show up. Well, yeah, they did show up for five minutes, but then they left. So, yeah, you understand. I had the need we had with Katerina Rusetska from Dnipro Kultura Medialna. We had a very big need to focus also on the fact of decolonization. These are two very big topics and after these five, six days in Castle, we had a very strong need to focus and talk in depth about West-splaining and decolonization. Of course, those topics are very connected. Well, because it is the colonizing gaze, as if someone is taking away your subjectivity. 
We also invited Maria Jarczuk. She works and lives in Hamburg and therefore knows a lot about Westplaining. She ran uh, the colonial workshops in Hamburg uh, right after the beginning of the war. And before the war, she did a program Decolonize Eastern Europe. We invited also Alina uh, Samenova, who is an anthropologist and cultural expert deeply involved in the topic of decolonization and was explaining as well. And last but not least, we also invited Katerina Skipoczka, an essayist and researcher who has written some important texts in the recent months. We invited them very last minute when we started to think what we could do and uh, thought we need more voices. The girls just recorded some statements for us on video and we played them before the discussion. On our side was also Markus Heap. He is originally from Germany, born in Berlin, but for the last four years traveling to Ukraine quite often. He also spent the last five months in Ukraine. He travels to different regions, especially war-affected ones, and takes photographs. He is a film director. We wanted to make sure that if those Germans who we invited initially didn't show up, that Markus would be the one representing Germany, kind of. And when someone in the hall once asked, but then how do we talk to you? How should we talk to you guys? Markus took the microphone and said, listen, just listen. For the past five months, I opened myself and I'm listening despite the fact that we don't even speak the same language. It seems so simple, right? Yeah, it seems so, but the experience shows that it's not at all like that. The idea of this documenta was precisely to focus on countries and artists outside of the West, precisely to think collectively, to think decolonially. Were there also people in the audience who, because of their non-Western context, were able to understand uh, more of what you're talking about and found that connection due to experiencing West-planning from a different place in the world? Well, you know, the conversations uh, were linked to time and place. I have a feeling that many people who uh, wanted to didn't manage to come specifically for those three days. But, for example, there was a couple of people from Belarus. Among others, as part of our program, there was a screening of Courage by Alexei uh, Paluyan, probably know the film. And he was also part of the program. He joined our meetings and I have the feeling that we understood each other. He often spoke in our discussions after the presentations. It's just that Belarus has a slightly different perspective, for example, in terms of language. It is so painful. I saw it recently among my friends during the decolonial lectures as part of our series at Sunflower House. When Belarusians come to the events, we speak anyway from our own Ukrainian historical perspective. In these events, we speak about language and we get lost when hearing about the case of Belarus. We don't understand. We all speak Ukrainian. 
there is not such problem for us. Our literature, even for these past 30 years, has been written in Ukrainian. In Belarus, however, the language has been literally banned for 30 years. Speaking this language can bring you problems on an everyday basis. Speaking Belarusian is literally banned. So it is difficult for us Ukrainians to come to understanding in the field. Although I understand it partly because I have friends from there and I have heard a lot of stories. I also wanted to tell you about an interesting situation that happened in Kassel. Together with Taras Gembik, a good friend of mine with whom I'm running the Sunflower House, we came to the exhibition of Saudat Ismailova. It was already the fourth or fifth day of our stay there in Kassel. And we were walking around the city in these t-shirts all the time. T-shirts with decolonized Russia written on them, right? Yeah, exactly. Decolonized Russia. I also took a couple of them to distribute among the Ukrainian delegation, to everyone basically. Alexei also got one, and more people. So suddenly a big group appeared in Kassel. Sometimes we were walking in a big group, sometimes scattered in smaller teams. Strolling around Kassel in these decolonized Russia white t-shirts. And people actually wondered what was going on. Is this some kind of art happening? Sometimes they asked us what it was about, listened to us, took some photos. One man from Russia wanted to beat us up, but it was all fine in the end. Well, but back to the story. Me and Taras came in these t-shirts to an exhibition of Saudat Ismailova, an artist from Uzbekistan. We took part in an Uzbek dance workshop and at the end we went uh, up to Saudat and asked if we could take a photo with her. And she said, ah, it's you. I've already seen you, a couple of you, in this t-shirts around the city. Yes, it's us. And she didn't even ask why, what does this t-shirt mean. We asked if we could take a picture together and she only smiled and said, yeah, of course. And it was for me such a, you know, wordless agreement, such a sincere agreement, really. Before going to the workshop, I wanted to know what this artist's position is in relation to the war and Russia's aggression. I didn't find anything on her socials and she didn't say anything publicly, so her position was a question mark. That's why when I asked if we could take a picture, I had in the back of my mind that maybe she wouldn't want to. But that kind of smile, that very sincere smile, saying, yeah, of course you can, was a very positive experience to me. Perhaps one of the most positive moments I had in document. In this few-minute break, I could be promoting a useless product or an external sponsor that would allow me to make this project financially sustainable. Yet, I want to use this few minutes to tell you more about my Patreon account that I mentioned already at the beginning of this episode to show how you listeners can support this podcast financially. 
Patreon is an American membership platform, but working also internationally, that provides tools for content creators like me to run a subscription service. Uh, that way, creators can earn a monthly income and in return provide the subscribers with some cool rewards. Under patreon.com slash kitchen conversations, you can find my subscription service where I offer four membership levels. I think it's generally great that all the material that I'm producing is free for you to use and on all the podcast players, yet it would also be nice to have a type of income from all the work I'm doing to also uh, bring the podcast farther to invite some more guests, speak about various uh, topics, have a better quality and also perhaps be able to pay at least a symbolic sum to the guests who share so much uh, of their art and the insights of their practice with all of us. So please check out my Patreon account, see if you can support in any way. Otherwise, you can also share the podcast with one other person that you think could benefit and have an interest in it. All right, let's leave Documenta for now. I think we could do a whole episode about it. But there are so many other things uh, you do, and I'd like you to talk about it as well. I don't know if uh, we'll be able to talk and discuss everything uh, that I would like you to tell. Uh, but it seems uh, that uh, your most important project at the moment is uh, working and collaborating with others on Solidarny Dom Kultury Słonecznik in Warsaw. So, and maybe you can tell a little about how it started and what is going there right now. It started with us going to Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw on the fourth or third day of the war. Not to the museum itself, not to the pavilion at the Vistula River, but to the place where the museum had its offices, so in Pańska 3 Street. There uh, are now offices and a quite large uh, exhibition space where they were hosting meetings, readings and so on. So we came there uh, to prepare banners for the protests at the Russian embassy. And from that moment on, we actually stayed there. We occupied it. Taras likes to say that we occupied the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, with the permission, of course, of the curators who joined us in the occupation in order to create together a space. I, from the beginning, called it a safe space for us, for all of us. But now it has become a safe space for a lot of people who took part in some of the events we organized by the Sunflower and also are some of them are still with us today. And we work there with a big collective, but above all with the museum staff. The chief curator, Sebastian Cichocki, uh, curator Natalia Silevich, uh, Bogna Stefańska, Kuba Depczyński, Kaja Kustra, Taras, of course, Maria Duburia. All these people previously worked or are working at Museum of Modern Art. And I simply came there to do the banners and I eventually stayed. At the beginning, the needs uh, were very basic. For example, to deliver food to points where Ukrainian people were arriving to Warsaw. From the beginning, we made sandwiches and delivered them to the railway stations, for example. When people arrived at the train station and were queuing, they would get some food from us. Later on, 
together with Conflict Kitchen and Kobiety Vendrovne, we made proper hot meals. We laughed with Taras that it was our reaction to the war. Of course, apart from the sandwiches, we were collecting humanitarian aid, collecting medicine, which we are still collecting, and we deliver those through a foundation or directly to hospitals in Ukraine. But we laughed with Taras that making sandwiches was our reaction to the war, when we were in total shock, in total terror, not knowing what to do and how to act, we made sandwiches. And in the end, we made more than 30,000 sandwiches. And it was a sort of compulsory activity, hysterical making of sandwiches, because something had to be done and we were doing that. A lot of people were coming to us from the art community, our friends who joined and made these sandwiches with us. And it was also a very inclusive, a collective feeling of some kind, that we were doing it all together. You know, like at a protest, you feel this energy of being together, of protesting together against something there in a crowd. I had the feeling that in making the sandwiches at the beginning, there was also an element of agency and support. Also, I understood that we Ukrainians are not the only ones affected. I saw in the eyes of my friends from Poland who were just horrified by the whole situation as well. And these people were also part of the action, right? People from Poland, so not only people from Ukraine, but everyone who wanted, who was at that time in Warsaw, could join your action and act. Yes, exactly. Now we are talking about the Sunflower House uh, as an example of an institutional support and the reaction of institution to the war in general. I mean, in the end, an institution lent us, gave us quite a lot of their space to do anything we wanted. They also gave us their resources. Now the organization is an official part of the MSN's public program. At the moment we are in a bit of a holiday state, everyone's gone somewhere and there's not much going on in the Sunflower, but from September on we are back with a full program. And now we are focusing more on our educational and artistic program, because everything here revolves around culture and art. We run various workshops, a lot of people from Ukraine travel via Warsaw to somewhere farther. It's impossible to travel otherwise at the moment. You take a bus for over 24 hours and from Warsaw you can already take a flight to wherever you want. So I have a lot of connections in Ukraine and when those people travel through Warsaw, I invite them to do a workshop or something like that in Sunflower on their way. There were also courses where you could learn Ukrainian because a lot of Polish people from the artistic circle showed an interest in learning Ukrainian and using it in their work. So we started to teach Ukrainian in Sunflower as well. What else? Well, we have uh, this decolonization program, which we started in June, and there were already three meetings. Each invited person chooses uh, their topic, of course, in the theme of decolonization, uh, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and so on. And we meet in a quite large group to discuss. Recently, our invited artist and speaker 
was a person from Belarus, and during her talk, I too understood how important it is to combine those different discussions into one. Because each of us has a different experience of colonization, each of the post-Soviet countries. Another important thing that came out of Sunflower is an initiative called Soniak. Most of the people involved belong to the post-artistic practices, an informal group of artists and activists. At the beginning of this full-scale invasion, we put together an emergency meeting in Warsaw, where a lot of people from Ukraine, but also all different regions of Poland, came together. When they asked me in Germany, in Kassel, how the artistic community should react, I said, just like that, exactly like that. There was more than 100 people from very different regions, towns, cities, who in the first week of the war simply bought tickets to Warsaw and came to the meeting and asked what to do, what can we do, how can we cooperate here. At the meeting we already saw that we have to divide into groups, each would deal with another question. And I was of course in the group about Westplaining, because it was clear from the very beginning that something bad was happening in that direction. Plus the problem with Russian bots and the propaganda that is being carried out outside of Russia in different countries. Russia has many connections that they have been building for many more than 20 or 50 years. Cultural connections above all. Anyway, I was in the explaining group and then we sort of realized that we need to do something. And we came up with the idea of making a website, an online platform. And I'm also part of a project called Soniak Digest against war, imperialism and explaining. The website is currently under construction, but it will be up soon. We hope to present the full program in September. We already prepared some events, exhibitions and texts. So above all, the platform focuses on academic and the non-academic sides of the situation. In fact, I feel that with this war, with the attack on Ukraine, Russia has simply opened Pandora's box. A Pandora's box that will follow them for a very long time. Finally, the world has understood what is really going on, how it is all connected. We see Russia bombing Ukraine, and at the same time we see Russia bombing Syria. We see the bombing of food resources in Ukraine, which goes for export. And we now see who is or will be most affected by the hunger associated with that, the shortages of wheat, 
of grains in general. The ones affected mostly will be, of course, the African countries and so the Global South. Now we can understand more the Belarusian perspective, what was happening in Kazakhstan. I am additionally following, doing my own research and keeping track on what is going on in Russia, because I've had such great hope since the very beginning of the war that there will finally be some change. Finally something will happen. I'm following all those decolonial movements of Siberia, Buratia, but it is really a very small group of people. Yeah, but it's great that those people exist, right? Yeah, of course. Primarily it's women, feminists. I also follow an anti-war feminist coalition, a feminist group that recently organized, mind you, in the middle of Russia, of course it was on Zoom, but still in Russia, a discussion about decolonizing Russia. So in the end, there are ways of loudly saying no. It is possible. You know, after Castle, I also have this conviction that without the Russians, the thinking, the normal Russians, of whom there are unfortunately very few at the moment, but there are there, it is impossible to decolonize Russia, because otherwise everything will be done by force. Yeah, they have to decolonize themselves, just as Western Europe did. Most of the Russians who were at the Documenta were open to listen just to listen, to be there and try to understand. I could see in their eyes that they were listening and learning, and that was very cool to see. Not all of them, of course, are like that. So again, we can't generalize. But I have to say that I felt a tiny flame of hope that it is possible to change. A tiny hope, but still, that makes me happy. A very, very tiny one, but I'm glad I have it. Well, on this positive note, I'd like to talk about your project that you created together with Marta Romankiv and Veronika Zalewska. Marta was also on my podcast, so I thought it would be fun to talk about a project that you two did together. Uh, so you mentioned the food crisis and how Russia's aggression, the war, is now a thing of the whole world, right? So in this project uh, in which you created this food kiosk, uh, you talk about all those things in a beautiful way, in a socially engaged way rather than in a typical artistic way. I would like you to uh, talk a little about it, uh, about the whole work. What was it all about? Um, because as you know, I, my podcast is called Kitchen Conversations and here I also speak about food and all those kind of grassroots initiatives from the kitchen side. Therefore, I do feel uh, your project a lot and I can understand the language which you were expressing. <laughs> well, yeah, actually I'm right now in the kitchen, literally. Oh, yeah, 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 I see now in the back the fridge and actually my sticker, Kitchen conversation sticker on your fridge. That's so funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot it matches my fridge, actually. <laughs> but anyway, 
you know, it was quite a reactionary project. We were invited um, already earlier to this mini residency to do a project in the marketplace in Gdynia. This project has been going on for a few years now and it's called uh, The Grid. In Gdynia, as far as I understand, there is not much going on in terms of culture and art. And the idea of doing an art uh, installation inside the market hall is, of course, totally my vibe. I grew up next to a big market hall in Dnipro. My mother, she doesn't even understand that you can buy food at another type of shop. For her, it's only at the market. She has her sellers who are also her friends, you know. There is Baba Hala there, another one there. Totally different vibe and I really love it. There Baba Hala won't sell me tomatoes because they are not too fresh today. And out there that seller lady has better ones. You know, that kind of interactions and friendships inside the market hall. So when I entered the Gdynia market, which by the way has a beautiful architecture, I felt totally for it and I was like, this is my place. And of course, as I mentioned, it was a reactionary project. It was something so astonishing, you know, when they started to burn the grain. In general, in those five months, I felt that there was some kind of situation that you didn't really live through yourself, but you inherited it from your ancestors in the DNA. For example, when the war started, a lot of my friends from Poland told me that all of a sudden they started to feel this fear of war. And I had the same. We felt it's not our fear, but the fear of our grandmothers, grandfathers. I have felt that from the beginning of the war, but more in relation to food and the resources. So when I first saw those videos of the Russian army bombing and burning the fields, I suddenly felt the scream of my ancestors from within. You have the feeling that you're suddenly participating in a situation that is not just related to this moment, but was also part of your great-grandparents or grandparents' life, who were fighting for a similar thing. Well, maybe not always fighting, but they were there directly connected and living through those situations. I come from the east of Ukraine, and there we had two or three famines. There was the famine of the 1920s, which also affected other regions of the Soviet Union and was instrumental in destroying the Ukrainian countryside and towns with so much terror. We still do not know much about it because it was kept quiet. We do not have any direct documents confirming what really happened. We have some evidence, but not enough to confirm the number of victims. Some say 3 million, some say 7 million people were simply killed and died because of the famine that was consistently implemented for two years. Food was simply taken away from people. They were short on any food. It particularly affected the countryside and in particular eastern Ukraine. So you know when someone asks me, why do you speak Russian in the East? Well, let's look at the history of Ukraine. Let's look where did we have repressions? Where was the famine? How was Ukraine russified? In what regions? 
what kind of terror was going on there. This is how the culture, the identity of half of the country was destroyed. But anyway, back to the food story. So when we saw what was going on with the food resources the past five months, Many of us had the feeling that history is repeating itself, and in such a drastic way. Of course, it's one thing that something like that can happen in the 21st century, but the other is to feel that this has already happened before. Not in your lifetime, but in another lifetime. Something that you didn't experience, but was bequeathed to you. So our main aim in this kiosk project was to inform about the situation. And we didn't want to do it in a protest activist way, but instead give something to people to show that there might be some kind of exchange. After all, we were in a market hall where money counts, where you sell and buy stuff. So we came up with a symbolic currency that you could use to pay for the foods that we were cooking. The food was also made from products which were now being destroyed or are being destroyed in Ukraine. Wheat, sunflower seeds, mice, wheat groats, the products which are mostly exported from Ukraine to the rest of the world. Were the recipes also Ukrainian? Uh, there was kvass from my grandma's recipe. Kvass is a very classic Ukrainian recipe. We also made a sunflower paste. It's like a paste made from ground sunflower seeds. You soak the sunflower seeds and grind them in a blender. It's more a contemporary recipe. You could think of it as a Ukrainian hummus. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what I wanted to say. It seems similar to hummus. Yeah, we used wheat groats to make also a vegetables too. But yeah, kvass was our main value. It took a long time to make and it was our treasure. In Ukraine, it's a very popular drink, especially on holidays. Everyone drinks kvass, everyone makes kvass at home. And for example, my grandma makes a really good one because it's not too sweet, it's actually a bit sour. So in summer, when the temperature uh, in Ukraine hits up to 40 degrees, you come home and there's this cool kvass in the fridge and it's so delicious to have. So we came up with this currency that we give people food and in return we get survival recipes that people can write down on the walls of the kiosk. On top of that, we also made an information map where we show the directions of where the wheat and other grains are being usually transported from Ukraine well before the war to show which countries will be most affected by the war in Ukraine in terms of food. We also wrote different recipes down, how to sow wheat, how to sow sunflowers. Veronica, who works with words in general, wrote poems on the subject too. We also made another information map to show where the wheat is stored and in which regions it was destroyed and so on and so forth. These maps, these newspapers, we later used to wrap the food we sold. Apart from that, we also handed out sunflower seeds, a popular Ukrainian snack, which could be seen as our chips. We made friends with all the traders around the market. Everyone liked us. Next to us was a lady who has been selling linen dresses there for 10 years. And it turned out that she's from Lithuania and she was very supportive of us. She makes 
handmade bracelets from Amber, and in the end she gifted each of us with a bracelet which she made herself. And of course, a lot of people from the market came to us for food, to dine with us for free. And it was so touching to see that everyone liked us, to develop such personal connections, which I think would be not possible otherwise. The fact that you enter into a relation with people who are from a totally different environment than you and it would be impossible to meet otherwise. And here you just suddenly form the special relationships. Well, yeah, it seems to me that this project perfectly illustrates what we were earlier talking about, the empathy, support, listening to each other, about these very personal connections, natural behaviors that sometimes come so hard to us. All this ideology seems to guide us in very different directions sometimes and we forget to simply listen to each other and feel each other more. This is why I think that working with food in general is such a nice way to find common understandings. It can bring people from very different contexts together because we all like to eat good things, right? It brings us the feeling of home, connects us to something familiar, something pleasant, warm. That's why I really appreciate your project and I hope to see it sometime live. It's already a tradition to speak about food on this podcast because it's called Kitchen Conversations and I'm also collecting here recipes, favorite recipes from home. So what would be your favorite Ukrainian dish? Would you say it's kvass? Yeah, I think I would say kvass. It's the first time I actually made it now. All my life I drank kvass at home, at my grandma's house. But now I have understood that it is art to make it and you need patience. Uh, however, it's very simple. All you need is bread, yeast, some sugar and water. The one thing is that you need patience and at least three days for it to get refined. Well, it's a bit like kombucha, I guess. If you ever done kombucha, you also need to taste it every time since you know how it should taste in the end of the process. It tastes a bit different every time and it's the same with kvass. So that would be my recommendation. Just uh, getting the right bread might be a bit uh, tricky and challenging. It was also a bit challenging in Gdynia because the bread uh, should be super dark. Uh, the so-called Lithuanian bread, for example, it's nice for that. In Ukraine, black bread is super popular because it's also cheaper to produce. Perhaps it would also work with white bread, but I'm not sure because the black one uh, has this kind of strong taste. Is it also becoming a bit of a hipster drink or is it still considered something more traditional and cultural? You know what? It could be. Now that I mentioned kombucha, I thought after all, yeah, kombucha is very hipster. But in Ukraine, kvass uh, is not really. 
there is no kvass trend per se because it's a very common drink. It's so common that you can buy it on the streets. Uh, it's everywhere. You can get it in a better or worse uh, grocery store. There are barrels standing on the streets and there is a lady who sells kvass to you. It's so common here that people haven't thought about making it a highlight product. But I'm sure maybe in some restaurant somewhere well, or in the West, right? Well, yeah. But uh, let's stick to the traditional uh, Ukrainian kvass in the end. Thank you, Yulia, for your contributions today. You are the first Ukrainian or Polish, not sure how you like to speak and refer to yourself, artist to appear on my podcast since the beginning of the war the full-scale invasion. I was waiting for the right moment to give space to Ukrainian artists to speak up. I felt before there was more urgent things for you to take part in a podcast. But therefore, I'm glad uh, to have you as the first one because I really like your work and I think it's very valuable what you do. Uh, the whole podcast will also be translated to English, which will, of course, take some time. And I'm also uh, planning to take a little holiday in the coming weeks. Uh, but eventually the podcast will be released in two versions, in Polish and English. Thank you very much for the conversation, the kitchen conversation. Yeah, literally, <laughs> literally, literally kitchen conversations. And this was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. I will see you next time with another great artist and speaker. And as mentioned at the beginning, you can support this podcast via Patreon on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations or alternatively, you can also help me develop this platform by making a one-time donation, following my Instagram account, or leaving a comment on one of the podcast players. All of the needed links are placed in the show notes of this episode. Take good care. Until next time. <laughs>